Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. Our very special guest on the show this time is Nakme Abedini Panahi, who's here to talk to us about her new Whitaker House book written with, with Eugene Bach called I Didn't Survive, Emerging Whole After Deception, Persecution and Hidden Abuse. Nakme first made national news when she publicly advocated for the release of her then-husband, Saeed Abedini, who was imprisoned in Iran for his Christian faith. Nakme brought worldwide attention to the plight of persecuted Christians and tirelessly proclaimed the gospel to millions across the globe, even meeting with then-President Barack Obama and future President Donald Trump. But when Nakame revealed the years-long domestic abuse she had suffered at the hands of her husband, many Christian leaders and supporters turned their backs on her, and some even urged her to remain silent. Well, thank goodness she didn't. And this book is the result. Nakame Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on the program. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, this is a um, a dramatic and um, at times harrowing read. I've got to say, I have read the book. Now, why the title of the book, I Didn't Survive? In what ways didn't you survive? Well, I think the best way I can probably explain it is, is a caterpillar going into a cocoon. And the caterpillar is no longer really a caterpillar, is now a butterfly. There is the old me uh, became different through suffering and what I went through, through the abuse and then the revelation of that. So the me now is so different than the me before. So that's why I didn't survive. The old me didn't survive. There's a new me. Mm. You write, I could have been the wife of a Christian hero, but I gave that up. Now, why did you feel you needed to give that up? Well, I had um, I had two roads in front of me once I realized I was in an abusive marriage um, I was told by a lot of famous pastors and leaders to be quiet and that if I was quiet we could have a great ministry I could have a great ministry and we would be these celebrity um, heroes Christian heroes traveling the world and making a lot of money and having private jets and all of that and just the kind of a glimpse into the world worldly Christianity, which uh, is uh, unfortunately a big part of the Western Christian world. Um, and the other road that was before me was what the word of God was saying to me, that friendship with the world is being an enemy to God, that everything had to come to light and there was going to be a price that would p- be paid. It would uh, me mean me losing everything, um, including no longer being this Good Christian woman, good Christian wife, losing what I was, um, what was what I was afraid of the most, which was my marriage. I was very afraid of divorce and being a single mom, um, and that's one of the reasons I advocated for Saeed to come out of prison. I was afraid of my kids growing up without a dad and being a single mom, and so um, yeah, so I had two roads before me. One was obedience to the Word of God and being loyal to Him, which meant there was going to be a cross and a cost. The other road was a road that many Christians were in that included being a Christian, quote, and unquote, and still um, having a good life, still having the world. So having both. And God God wouldn't allow me to take the other road. And I took, uh, I guess, the road less taken, and it was very costly. I did lose everything. But my relationship with Christ, where it's at now, is 
I wouldn't change it for anything in this world. You're an amazing lady, is all I can say. What sort of pressures were placed on you? Let's get down to some specifics. I'll, and I'll come back to this later because I want to ask you first about your earlier life, which, which is fascinating. But what sort of pressures were placed on you to remain silent about the abuse? I had, well, I'm going to be very specific. Um, Franklin Graham was one of the first uh, who um, told me to be quiet, that I was damaging the cause of Christ if I, I was to let this be known. I had lawyers that I worked with uh, that were had helped me advocate for Saeed tell me that. Um, I had a lot of mega church pastors call me. My own pastor, the first uh, thing, time he heard it, he said, don't let anyone know this. It, it will, he was, he, um, I guess Franklin's take was that it would damage the cause of Christ. So be quiet. My pastor basically said, if people realize Said isn't, uh, that you're claiming that your hero husband is an abuser, you're going to get stoned to death. He was actually concerned about me. But so for different reasons, um, I had many phone calls, many advice, and most of it was to be quiet for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel and the cause of Christ. Mm, very strange. Let's come back to, I'll come back to that a, a bit later in the interview, but can we wind the clock back as it were? And can you describe for us something of your childhood in Iran? You, you were born in 1977, only two years before the uh, revolution. What was it like growing up in Iran? It was very interesting. As I write in my book, my mom was in the Iranian military. Uh, her job, um, soon after I was born, the Islamic revolution happened, which they overthrew um, uh, the Iranian people, overthrew the Shah, the king of Iran, which Iran or Persia has had kings for had had kings for thousands of years, and they overthrew the king and replaced it with an Islamic republic, so a country run by the Islamic uh, system. And uh, um, growing up, it was I was very confused in a way. My mom was defending the king and trying to keep him uh, in place and stopping the riots. And my dad was actually one of the people that really wanted the Islamic government to happen. And he thought that was the solution to um, change in society and the poor getting helped. So that was one dynamic inside of our home. My mom with guns and going out into the street. I remember my Nana who raised us. She was she um, was like a second mom to us or, or a grandma to us. She would cry not knowing if my mom was going to come back because she was out in the streets trying to defend uh, the king against the rioters and against the revolution. And so that was the inside the house dynamic. But also on the outside, right after the revolution, there was a war that happened about, I think, a year uh, right around the chaos of the revolution. Uh, all I remember is war. Um, and so... Um, the first years of the the first year of the revolution, I do remember even as a little toddler looking out the window and seeing tires being burned, stores being broken into, and then the war is mostly what I remember: um, bombs and missiles and hiding in bomb shelters and fear of death and seeing my classmates dead on the street and the rubble, and um, and those things have never left me. They 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 I I I guess I my childhood was shaped. Um, in war and in revolution. So they're all, it's it's always a part of who I am. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I now work with a lot of refugees and I understand like Syrians and others fleeing war, what they feel because of what I went through as a child. Yeah. How did the revolution change your society, do you think? 
Well, in my book, there's a photo of me. I I was looking at that photo. I am the most covered up. If you look at that photo on the book, um, and you can see why I'm the most covered up because some of the girls have some hair showing. I was really controlled by fear. I didn't want any hair showing because that's what I was taught at school that, you know, I would go to jail if uh, if my hair was showing. I was just, it brought a lot of fear. And then I saw the way my mom, um, her, um, you know, how she changed. She was this proud woman who was one of the first in military, um, you know, um, basically uh, men, you know, she was, you know, men that were uh, powerful. She could, you know, uh, she she knew karate and she she was a strong woman in my mind. And then I saw after the revolution that kind of started changing. They her badge, uh, her um, badges were taken away from her. Her rank was taken away. She became an office worker, and she was. I could see she was living in fear because at that time a lot of the people that had defended the king were being executed. So she didn't know if she was going to be there, you know, if all of a sudden they were going to say, oh, you were, you're a spy or you were against us. Now we're going to kill you, which they did to a lot of people. So at that time, a lot of people that were with the Shah either fled Iran or were being killed. So there was a lot of fear that surrounded that. I noticed the change and attitude towards women, especially that that was a great change that I noticed after the revolution. And again, uh, going to school, you know, uh, it was very different. Girls and uh, boys were separated and uh, girls were, um, there's just a lot of fear in, in terms of having to be covered up and not being attempting to men, even at the age of uh, seven, eight or nine, even as a little girl. Yes, I think you're right. You, your mum was the first female officer to be accepted into the Shah's army. Is that correct? Yes. She, she, had, so, she had a black belt. Did she have a? I think you're right. She had a black belt in karate. Yeah. Am I right? She had. She a sounds black formidable. Belt. She sounds absolutely. And you're right. In fact, I've written this down. You're right. I was born into a line of strong women who knew how to fight in a society dominated by men. And I was. I think you've already partly answered the question. But I was going to ask you, how did they learn to fight, and how did you learn to fight? I learned from my mom and my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother prided herself having become a pharmacist at a time where women were, it was not um, considered important for women to be educated. You know, Iran had kings for thousands of years, but um, the Islamic influence has been in Iran uh, for 1400 years. So that influence uh, basically saying women are second class citizens, they shouldn't be educated, you know, they should be married young. Uh, my, my, both my mom and my grandma really broke through that. They married later in life. My mom was in her mid-20s, where a lot of times Muslim and Muslim cultures, uh, um, women are married off in their teens or younger. Uh, my grandma was uh, married later. They, he, She wanted a career. She was a pharmacist working in the pharmaceutical. So both of them really um, in a society that told them they shouldn't be anything uh, uh, anything other than maybe a nurse or a teacher or even if that both of them really broke through that um, just um, stigma and broke through that prejudice. Yes. Now, how did you find, how did your family find Jesus? And was it your brother? I think it was your brother who had this extraordinary, one of the members of your family had this extraordinary experience with this vision of, of the Lord Jesus. Now, tell us about that. Yeah. So having been raised in the revolution, we I'd never heard of Jesus. Um, and so it was all about Islam and Muhammad and the prophets being Shia Muslim. You learn about the 12 prophets of Islam. 
And so we didn't know much about um, Jesus. I hadn't actually ever heard his name until we came. We had to flee Iran because of the war. My dad, uh, there was chemical warfare towards the end of the war. So 1986, my dad decides that we, we should come to America, flee war. We came to America. And soon after we came to America, my brother, who actually has a doctorate in quantum physics, he, he got it at the University of Chicago, just saying that because he's very mathematical. And he was crying. And that was the most impactful, seeing my brother, who's never emotional, crying uncontrollably um, and telling me that he had found God and his name was Jesus. And he had had a vision of Jesus. And that's that was my first uh, encounter or in my first uh, time of hearing about who, even Jesus. Who is he? Well, uh, you know. And how, how did you come to And indeed, how did your whole family eventually come to accept Jesus? Uh, I did through my brother's vision. He was so shaken that I kind of took that step to accept who Jesus was. We found someone who... Uh, told us we we asked people who's this Jesus my brother had a vision and they someone told us and they give us a bible and my parents found out and so we we were actually the person who gave us the bible uh, baptized us right there and there we were in a in a in a com complex where I had a swimming pool that everyone shared we were baptized there and then um, we were excited so we came home telling my mom my dad was traveling so we told my mom we're we're christians now and we did not realize the backlash we were going to get and they were very angry uh, my dad almost wanted my dad came back from his trip and found out and was very angry he almost moved us back to iran and um i had an uncle who had found a job in boise idaho and uh, recommended to my dad to move us to Idaho instead, where there would be not a lot of Christians. I laughed at that. I thought that was uh, that was very funny, as though I, I, there are no <laughs> Christians in Idaho. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they moved us from California to Idaho, thinking yeah. there's not going to be a lot of Christians there. But <laughs> and Idaho is actually where my parents found Christ. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, they um, and, uh, so they took the Bible. They took they took our Bible. And over the years, they were. St my mom started going through depression. She started reading the Bible, and that's how she got saved. And then my dad got saved um, soon after seeing the change in my mom. Yeah, I I've have heard... hundreds of stories from our yeah. house church members, people that had visions of Jesus as they were crying out to God, and yes. or being told to go somewhere where they would find yeah. Bibles or someone would tell them about Jesus. Yes, well, that, that is also a consistent story in England as well, which I, I find absolutely extraordinary. But anyway, now, um, where to next? How did you receive a call to go back to the Middle East? You're in, a, you're in the States and you've, you've received the, this call to go, to go and do ministry back, back in the Middle East. How did that happen? The first time it was uh, end of, I was studying to be a medical student. And first time I really felt like God was telling me to go back was end of when I was 22 years old. And I really felt sensed through different circumstances, God telling me to go back, which was scary because my parents had left Iran for, for the American dream, for a better future. But everything was confirmed. My parents were okay with it. And I went back and it went really bad. I, it was horrible. I couldn't, I realized I didn't have Christian vocabulary. I had left Iran for so long. My Farsi had gotten really bad. And I didn't even know how to preach the gospel because you need to know Christian vocabulary in Farsi. And I and I just realized I was not equipped. I went through a really, uh, my family members got mad at me, kicked me out of Iran. So I, um, so that was 99. And then in 2001, so I thought I was done. I went to India. I went to other places for mission. 
And in 2001, I felt uh, summer of 2001, I felt God telling me, no, you're going to go back. And um, so I reluctantly accepted. Um, I actually left a few months after September 11. But just God's divine, just how he works everything, because I think I needed to go back the first time to see like, I need to learn Farsi Christian vocabulary, I need to read the Bible in Farsi, I need to. And so, um, and then when God really laid on my heart to go back end of um, end of 2001, right after September 11, really, he was sending me at the verge of a revival. I didn't know that because my experience in 99, when I went back, there had been a lot of martyrs. I knew the Iranian government was killing Christians, but there wasn't much, many Christians. None of my family accepted Christ. Everyone got mad at me. Um, and so... I didn't expect what I saw when I went back, which was a revival, which was seeing thousands of Muslims become Christian. Yes, I was going to ask you how you became involved in the in the revival in Iran. I started sharing the gospel again with some of my friends and family, and I had a handful of people that actually became followers of Christ. I think after a year from end of 2001 until end of 2002, I had like five people <laughs> who accepted Christ. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Cause I didn't even expect that. And then um, I met, uh, I was invited to a building church, which is government sanctions, which now they're all shut down by the Iranian government. I was invited there and that's where I met my now husband. He was very charismatic. He was serving uh, as in worship. And he really drew my attention to him because I really wanted to marry someone who was as passionate for Jesus as me, I was willing to die for the gospel. And I wanted someone as passionate and also someone who was as passionate about evangelism. I, even when I'd been raised in the U S I was always helping with refugees. Um, and I was always sharing the gospel with the refugee, Muslim refugees in Boise. So I, I really, that really attracted me to my, my husband. So we decided, we started working together. He had, um, he had a few dozen people that he was, um, uh, I guess, pastoring in a home. So um, the backstory to Saeed's story is that the Assemblies of God in Iran, um, they had a lot of martyrs in the late 90s, and they decided to go underground as, as seeing that the government was uh, intensifying their persecution. So they opened a Bible school, and they picked 30, they handpicked 30 people um, which a lot of them were the martyrs' kids. Uh, and so one of the people they handpicked was Saeed because he was so passionate and he, such an evangelist. So they raised up these leaders that uh, their job was to go and start house churches. And so when I met Saeed, he had just uh, had a conflict with the Bible school. He was put on church discipline. I didn't know that at that time. But so he had been trained to start house churches. He had a dozen. I had five. We've joined forces. And within a year, uh, hundreds and then thousands became believers. And um, God in his divine providence, uh, because we were young, because we were in our 20s, uh, we reached the youth. We reached the college age. And so these, uh, and we lived in central Tehran, which is very close to Tehran University, uh, the capital of Iran. And so we, a lot of these college students that had come from different cities were getting saved. We would train them, not even realizing they're going to go back and start churches. So within a few years, we had churches in over 33 cities and all mainly young people, mainly um, people in their 20s. Yes. And this is where the story gets difficult, of course, and, and personal in the sense that the the abuse comes into play. At what, at what point do you think the abuse started for you? 
From the beginning, uh, the red flags were there. And I, I, I didn't see it then. I didn't understand emotional abuse or any of this vocabulary. And even physical abuse, which is existed in our marriage, um, I would ex I explained away as I was being too sassy. I was talking back. I should have been quiet. Um, but from the beginning, when he met me, I was so drawn to his charismatic personality and evangelism that the mistreatment that I would be like, wow, that's kind of rough. Uh, I would kind of ignore it, but because I would say, but look at what God's doing in our life. Like, God, so many are getting saved. So from the beginning, he started putting down my looks. Um, because my last name is Shariat Panahi, which means protector of the Islamic law. And it uh, links me back to the prophet of Islam. He would say, you're Arab, you're dark skin. I'm Aryan. I'm white. You know, he would just say, you're so uh, like, you're so dark. And he would just like, you know, when you meet someone, they're like, so like infatuated with you. He was not like that at all. He put me down. He said like, you need no surgery, eyebrow surgery. And so and then, uh, so I didn't realize that that's a, a form of abuse because your abuser wants you to lose uh, any self-confidence so that they can control you. So, and then he would question if like, why are you wearing that? Like question my decisions and what I wore, or even if I expressed the thought, he would say, wait, are you sure? Like, so I start questioning everything about myself, my looks, my, um, my thought, what I wore, what I ate. And then and he started isolating my, me from my, friends and family, he would say, well, you know, I'm so spiritual. I can see your sister has a spiritual problem. You should not spend more time with her. So I didn't see it then, but he was isolating from everyone that I was close to that could have said, wait a minute, something's wrong with this relationship. Um, the physical stuff didn't really happen until about a year in our marriage, even though there was some pushing and shoving. And also in my book, I, I explain actually him having me kneel down and kiss his feet. Uh, which was pretty drastic, but he, he, he would give me the ice, um, the, he would, he would not talk to me for days and sometimes weeks. And I would get to this breaking point because Said was, had isolated me from everyone else. And so he would give me the silent treatment, which I didn't see at that time as a form of abuse, which is like being put in solitary confinement in prison. Mm. And so that's the breaking point where I actually knelt down and kissed his feet to have him break the silence, but he was breaking me in other ways than physical, even though there was some pushing and shoving. Um, but the actual physical where it was the full on beating near death experience happened about a year and a half after our marriage. Yes. Now, um, when did your husband get arrested by the authorities? At what point? 2012. So I met him in 2002. We married in 2004. We left Iran. We had to flee Iran because of arrests. We both were arrested and detained. I was um, also threatened to be killed for my faith. We we decided it was best for us and for the house churches that we leave Iran in 2005. And then we kind of, he had a four-year break where he had no connection really to the house churches. So in 2009, he decided to go back thinking, well, I'm not doing house church anymore, so I should be okay. So he went back in 2009 and the Iranian government um, put him under house arrest, but they came to an agreement that he can go back and forth if he was going to do humanitarian work. So he was traveling quite a bit from 2009 until 2012, until in 2012, he was detained. And that's where my journey of freedom to from abuse really started. Which yes. I didn't know. yes. So And yes. And, the, and both your stories are dramatic, to say the least. How and why did you decide to go public over your husband's arrest? And what happened? 
Oh, about his arrest? Um, you know, in 2009, he had been put under house arrest, but we were, I was praying and fasting and he, they, he was released. He was allowed to leave the country after three months. And so in 2012, he was arrested in June, end of June. And I thought, you know, he's, I'm just going to pray and fast. He's probably going to come out again. So I actually waited six months before going to media. Um, I prayed and fasted and things kept, seemed to be getting worse. They seemed to be making his situation worse. We were worried for his life. And after discussing with my lawyers, ACLJ um, and his family, we just, and also Saeed had made a few phone calls from prison that it was time to go public. It was a very scary step because we didn't know how the Iranian government would react, but we needed to take a drastic step to say, hey, you know, put pressure on the Iranian government. And the six months before I went to media, we had tried everything. We had worked with different organizations to, we'd work with Germany and countries that had close ties, business ties with Iran. We would talk to businessmen, governments, hey, you know, like, can you bring this up? Can you ask them why they have a pastor in prison? So we did a lot of behind the scenes for six months. And it was not until we felt forced to go to media that we went to media. So many questions. Nagmay, where do we go next? How did how did you get to speak at the United Nations Human Rights Council? How did that come about? Well, uh, soon after I went to media, all these doors open, which I didn't uh, expect. Surprise, surprise. Well, I actually didn't expect it because I was told by other Americans that uh, there was a Marine in Iran that had been in prison for years. They said we couldn't bring this to attention. We tried. No one was picking up the story. So I was... And actually, right before I went to media, I felt God telling me I'm going to use this for the gospel. And I couldn't understand how. So soon after I went uh, live on media, a lot of news outlets started picking up the story and having me on interviews. And so I was invited to different like our uh, U.S. Congress and different events to speak. And one of it was the United Nations. And um, as I was about to speak in front of the United Nations, I knew that God had me there, not just for Saeed's imprisonment, but for the gospel to share about Jesus. So uh, as I spoke, there was there was a glass built, like there was, there was glass above me where there was all the translators on the second floor. And I could see all the translators translating into all these different languages. And I started crying because God reminded me that since I was nine years old, right before my parents took away my Bible, I had read uh, a Psalm 2, so someone had given me a Psalm New Testament, and I had just reached chapter 2 of Psalm where it says, today I've begotten you, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And then my parents had taken away the Bible. So for years, I had prayed like, God, I don't want anything. I don't want fame. I don't want money. I just want to, I want you to give me nations. I want to see the salvation of nations as my inheritance, especially the country that I was born in. And so when I sat at the United Nations and I could hear all the nations hearing about Jesus, I just, God reminded me of that prayer since I was a little girl. Mm. And the abuse uh, continued, you write, even while Said was in prison. At, at what point did you decide to speak up about what was really happening to you? I didn't want to speak up, but it built, it kept building up. So um, I was tired. I had traveled for three years Three and a half years, I had advocated for him. Either I was traveling or on news or writing articles for like uh, the Washington Post or or other famous uh, newspapers. I barely was functioning and I was a mom to two small children. And Saeed had obtained a phone inside of the prison. And here I thought, a lot of people thought 
um, I would be treated as a hero wife, but he was calling me names and uh, saying, you know, you're not, don't think you're anything special. People are clapping for me, not you. And so a lot of like, I couldn't understand. I was going through a lot and I was speaking at this church and, and I finally broke down to the pastor and I said, I don't know why my husband's treating me this way. He has a phone inside the prison. And that's when the pastor gave me the diagnosis that you're an abused wife. And so I didn't want to come to light about it. I was told by the same pastor, don't talk about it. Just be quiet. But um, I felt like those uh, there was a group of people that had supported me that loved Saeed. I felt like they needed to know. They needed to know the truth so they could pray for him. I never expected it to be leaked to media and become such a big, I guess it was it was shared by Reuters and Washington Post mm -hmm. and other mm -hmm. Can I ask you, because um, we've only got a few minutes left and, and uh, there's so many, so many questions. How many church leaders tried to convince you to go back to an abusive husband? Many. There was not, um, I would say, 20 plus uh, main leaders, mega church pastors and big names. Almost everyone I talked to, there was few that told me not to. I mean, there was only one, my abuse counselor, that says, no, this needs to be exposed. Mm, yes. Why do you think they'd advise you to, uh, to go back to an abusive relationship? Well, I'm going to summarize this. I think um, the heart of the matter is we think that protecting an institution is more important than saving a person, whether it's a marriage or a church. So we try to shut down any um, anyone speaking about abuse because thinking, well, we need to save this marriage or we need to save this church. But that's not the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is he, you know, we look at David, he, God brings things to light and exposes them to heal the church. So a lot of people try to hide it because they think they're protecting the institution, whereas um, it's actually not um, not according to the word of God. We're supposed to. Jesus came to save the person, not not an institution. Uh, uh, yes. And can I ask you, after you went public with all this, how many churches and or church leaders contacted you? Um, well, a lot of a lot of them, I would say I was getting hundreds of phone calls to be quiet. Uh, but in terms of any phone call uh, of support. And when you didn't and when you weren't quiet, what happened? Uh, they abandoned me. There was no more emails. There was no more support. There was no more um, invitations. There was nothing to say, hey, how can we? Well, part of it also was I knew, I knew that Franklin Graham was calling around a lot of pastors and saying, you know, uh, telling them to kind of um, promote Said and kind of distance themselves from me. So there was a lot of silence. I was I felt like I was the person bleeding by the side of the road and all these religious leaders were just passing by. Yes, I'm trying to find the quote. You say, in the midst of this rejection and isolation, I didn't lose my faith, but I no longer understood who I was and I no longer knew how God viewed me. Now, how did God meet you and restore you? Well, I had to lose everything and I had to hit bottom and I had to face all of my fears of losing everything and even my marriage to discover that I was his and that he was my provider, he was my defender. And so it really freed me of a lot of uh, fear and people pleasing. And it really has really um, brought me a lot of joy and peace, no matter what the circumstance. So I think I uh, hit, I think Corey Tamboon says, says that, that you hit the bottom and to realize that Christ is there. Mm -hmm. And so it really strengthened my faith that everything was taken um, pulled from me. I, my identity was stripped from me and I found my identity as the child of God, as, as belonging to him. And that's 
No one can take away that. Away Absol that absolutely. And you now have a, a remarkable ministry helping other persecuted and abused women. Yes. Me and my friend Maryam Ibrahim, she was in prison in Sudan on death row for her Christian faith. We help women who um, are face oppression, whether in a home or in a country, because of their faith. So, yeah, that's that's the ministry we do. And where can people find you on social media and the Internet? Yes. Well, if you search my name, Nagmeh Panahi, you can find me. All right. Well, Nagmeh, bless you. Thank you so much for your time. And um, I just wish we'd had longer to talk, but... Um, uh, people need to get the book. It's uh, it's a an incredible story. Nakme Abadini Panahi, and the book is the new book is from Whitaker House, uh, written with Eugene Bach. I didn't survive. Emerging whole after deception, persecution, and hidden abuse. Nakme, thank you so much for your time, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Nakme, bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.